0: Well turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter fourteen. And as we turn there, there's a little slip of paper in the bullet in the bulletin as well, with a place to write notes with the page number on there and Bibles in front of you. The first verse of Mark says this in the beginning. Or This is the beginning of the Good News about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This is both a title and an outline of the book. The Good News, the Gospel of Mark, is about Jesus the Messiah, the one who God promised would come. And Peter, in his confession in chapter 8, right in the middle of the book, confesses that he is the Messiah the fulfillment of all these promises. Therefore, you can trust Him. That's what the first half of the book is about. The second half of the book is about Jesus, the Son of God. The centurion confesses in chapter 16, truly this is the Son of God. You can know Him. And so we've been taking these weeks recently to understand how we can know this Son of God better as the prophet, priest, priest, And king. A prophet is someone that you listen to. King is someone you serve. Now, as we were looking at that and have these last couple of weeks, I said we don't get the king thing. Um, Let's go to the next slide. I have an update. Um, Look to the right first. That's an update of when I was talking about the king thing. You'll notice, of course, that's Prince William. I got another picture. The guy on the left is my... No, the guy on the right is my brother. The guy on the left is Prince William. Remember, we looked at that and we're fascinated. I have a brother who has not only met him, but sat in a room doing business with him. Uh, Customs, world, something that he does. Impressive. And you think that's great, and we're all fascinated by kingdom, but not the king. You don't want that man as your king. You fought a war of independence over this. You don't want any king telling you where to live and what to do and how many taxes to pay without representation. Do you? We love the idea of the kingdom, but not the king. And we have to understand that we serve an absolute monarch in the king of kings and the lord of lords. It's difficult for us because we don't know an earthly kingdom that is not tyrannical. But we don't have a tyrant for a heavenly king. Now, the right picture has no significance whatsoever. Somebody is starting a collection of these on my study door. Um, and um, I think the only thing to draw out of that is that we want to make sure that we are serving the only king of kings and lord of lords. Um, and so, whatever, I just thought I'd share that with you because somebody decided they wanted to share that with me and there's another one that's appeared. So go by my study and you can see, I'm curious to see how many of these end up showing on, up on my door. Now, I want us to turn from that frivolity to another concept that we often miss the riches of. The priest. The priest is one you praise. You praise the priest who took your place? Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And there is a key event tied to this, just like the other titles. This is the anointing at Bethany that we just read about. The key event for the for the uh, prophet was the transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. You listen to a prophet. The key event. For the king was the triumphal entry, except the king, not simply the kingdom. What you want from God. No, you want a king, not just a kingdom. And now in Mark chapter 14, we turn to the anointing at Bethany. Just a significant event, though many times not considered as important as these other two. This is a very significant chapter, chapter 14. As you look through, there's a lot more events than what we just read filled with important events. The Last Supper. The prediction of the denials of Judas and Peter. The first half of a conversation with Peter and the second half we're going to see picks up in John chapter 21. We also have in this chapter Gethsemane and the arrest and the trial and Peter's disowning of Jesus. And so it is easy to miss what appropriately precedes all of that. The spiritual priestly anointing of Jesus. A prophet speaks on behalf of God to man. A priest speaks on behalf of man to God. What you cannot do. This is where you are. Out of your league, in over your head, not up to the task, a day late, And $50 million short. You are helpless. You are hopeless. You are hellbound. You cannot be your own priest. You have no credibility to stand in the presence of God and advocate for yourself. You need a priest. Who's going to be your advocate? Who is going to be your priest? Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is your advocate. He stands in your place and advocates before the Father. He can because of all that these chapters record and what we will celebrate this morning around this table. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. On your behalf, He accomplished the substitutionary atonement. And what that is, is taking your place, your punishment, and God's penalty. He is your priest. What do you do for one who did all of that for you? You praise your priest who took your place. And That's what I want us to consider in these weeks and how Mark finishes his gospel. And today we're going to look at the humanity of praise. And then we're going to look at the understanding priest that we praise and then we're going to look at the perfection of the priest that we praise. But today I want us to reflect on the humanity of praise. In this chapter, in this humanity of praise, we find perhaps the greatest, and the worst examples of praise. First of all, the greatest, the best praise is all or nothing. And here is the event of the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. Now, I want to keep you uh, as adjourned as possible with this. So here's a by the way. This is a different incident than the one in Luke chapter 7. Several reasons. There's a difference in the women. The woman in Luke chapter 7 has a sinful past. That is contrasted with Mary. John chapter 12 records this event that we're reading in Mark chapter 14. And he identifies the woman as Mary. It's a different house. It's a different lesson. One is about waste. The other one is about who is anointing. So I just want to make that distinction. Mark chapter 14, John chapter 12 are the same event. Luke is a different event. But now, isn't God amazing? Consider the significance of this anointing. It may be twofold. It certainly is preparing him for his impending death. He says so in verse 8. Leave her alone. What she does is is preparing me for my death. But it is also poured upon his head. And I believe there is a priestly anointing that is happening here. In Exodus chapter 30, 22 to 33, you can go and read that. Great detail, great value, and an exclusive use of an oil that was prepared for this moment that was to be used only for these Purposes, the anointing of a priest. And in doing so, showed that he was only able to do this specific task. So here's the significance. We have an anointing by Mary of Jesus, preparing for his death and anointing him as the high priest to accomplish what only he can do. Now, get this. Listen. She doesn't know that. She has no idea. She doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know that she is anointing him as the priest to accomplish what only he can do. She doesn't know he's going to die. Now, they they should because he's been telling them over and over. But do you remember how surprised they all are and how hopeless they all are when it finally happens? In spite of how much he has said to them this is going to happen, they still are unaware? I don't think she knew. If she even knew that he was going to die, she did not know the significance of this priestly anointing for him to accomplish a task that only he could accomplish. And yet, she gives it all. This is a very rare perfume originating from the foothills of the Himalayas. The criticism she receives from Judas, we learn from John chapter 12 as well, and then the inference at the end of the passage that we read there in his acting out the betrayal. The criticism that he gives is that this is worth a year's salary. Imagine that. You won't tell me what you earn in a year. That's one of our cultural things that we don't share with people. But I know that you know that that, what that figure is. And would you go buy a bottle of perfume that cost an entire year's wages? And if you did, would you sacrifice it so lavishly in a moment like this? This may have been the kind of thing she would have received as an inheritance. It it could have belonged to her grandmother and had been passed down to her. Here's the point. This is worship. This is praise. Giving it all. The significance of which goes way beyond our understanding. Now follow me on this. Our praise in whatever form that has, and that's more than just our singing worship songs to our Heavenly Father, that's everything we act out that brings honor and glory to Him is significant beyond what we understand. Do you get that? You are invited by God to enter into a process of giving Him glory in significance way beyond what you understand. And yet He invites you in. And in time He will reveal just how very significant that is. Do you see that? We get to praise, and in it we enter into something greater than we even realize. Don't worry. You don't have to get it all. What it is that we're supposed to get is that we are to give it all. And Michael Card makes a very interesting observation. This is the same Mary, of course, that previously had spent time at the feet of Jesus instead of worrying about Centerpieces as Mary, as Martha was, and he, Michael Card, says, "Isn't it interesting what people will end up doing who spend enough time at the feet of Jesus?" On your best day, give praise. On your best day of praise, when you're doing the right thing. Do it all. Nothing is too great to sacrifice for Him. Because God will reveal to us in time just how very significant the event was that we entered into as we praised. The task that only God can do and that He chooses to use a human to actually do the anointing, the prefiguring of His preparing of of His burial, and His resurrection and the symbolic act of His being chosen to do what only He could do. God chooses those who need the priest to praise the priest, to offer the praise. So, best example of praise. On your best day, give it all. He says of her, For generations to come, she will be spoken of for what she has done. On your best day, don't hold back. Give it all. But then there are all the other days. The more common praise is weak and imperfect. And here our examples are not Mary... Here are examples are Judas and Peter. Do you take offense at the fact that I am implying that we are to be identified with Judas? Sure, Peter, because he denied. But not Judas. He betrayed. Let's read verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? As I told you, John chapter 12 indicates that that was Judas. Hmm. This was before his betrayal. Who of us has not leveled a complaint or criticized another for doing something financially that we felt was wasteful, lavish, or foolish? Who of us has not criticized someone else because we thought that that was a waste? I dare say there isn't anyone here who hasn't done that. Who are we to criticize? I'll tell you who we are. We're Judas. Or, as a songwriter friend of mine sings, there is a Judas Judas in all of us. Secondly, how many of us justify ourselves because we aren't as bad as another? Well, at least I didn't do this, or at least I didn't do that. This is where Peter comes in. We we identify more with him, willingly perhaps, in part because it means we're only a denier and not a betrayer. Was either of these sins unforgivable? If Judas had returned repentant, would the sacrifice, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of this world been sufficient to forgive Judas? Indeed, indeed. Now, it's true that Judas did not return repentant. So he was not forgiven. So we look to Peter for some hope. So we must ask ourselves the obvious question. Is there a repentant Peter in all of us? If there is a critical and rebellious Judas... And we want to know the forgiveness of our Savior. There must be a repentant Peter as well. The next part of the chapter, and then in the end record Peter's foolish pride, his presumption, his great failure. Just what I want you to see most importantly is verse 29. When Jesus predicts his denial, he says, Even if all the others fail, I will not. And this is what I want you to understand from that. This is, the only, this is only the first half of that conversation. There's the prediction, you will. There's the presumption, I will not, even if all the others do. And then there's the denial. That's only the first half of the conversation. The story ends there. At that point, Jesus goes on to fulfill all that his priestly role called him to do as he sacrificed his life and did what only He could do for us. But when it was all over, and He was crucified, buried, and resurrected, He then reappears to Peter and the others in John chapter 21, and He picks up the conversation. Now, Peter, do you still think you love me more than these love me? John chapter 21. Do you love me more than these? Do you still think what you said in Mark chapter 14, that even if all the others fall, you will not fall? Do you really still think that you love me more than anybody else loves me? Peter answers extremely well. In using the word phileo instead of agape, agape. Agape, the deepest kind of godly, sacrificial love. That's what Jesus asks him. Do you sacrificially, like my Father, love me? To whom, or to which, Peter responds, I'll never be so presumptuous again. I love you like a brother. But you know how failing my love is. I'll never say that again. What is that? That's a repentant heart. And he is forgiven. Here's the point. We may mean well, but most of the time we fall very short of all of the praise that we are supposed to give. I'm sure Peter meant, well, I'm sure he was trying to just be that good leader and say, Lord, we're going to hang in there with you. But he didn't. I'm sure he was zealous, but he fell short. So, so do we. So often. In fact, that's the meaning of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us fail. We have those great days. And when we do, on your best day, give it all. Because you are entering into something so much greater than you even know. And God in time will show you the depth of the meaning of that praise. But on every other day, which there are many more, on all the other days, know this, The conversation is not over. It's not over. We always have a God who is waiting to finish the conversation. So, we are about to sing a hymn. Jesus, the very thought of Thee, in which we sing, O hope of every contrite heart. O joy of all the meek. To those who fall, how kind thou art. How good to those who seek. Brent, would you come and let's sing this hymn.